Hey there everybody and welcome to another episode of the Horror Crypt Podcast, episode number 27. Yes, I'm rocking along through the month of October and really enjoying the movies that I've been reviewing. Today I'm going to be reviewing the really campy's sequel to the original, Creepshow Part 2. Yep, this was one of my favourite campy's 80s movies. Um, they tried to capture lightning in the bottle again. I think they did a pretty good job. This one... Um, Really, they didn't have as many stories as the original. I think the original had like five. This one's got three, but it's still entertaining and it still keeps you going. And it is just one of those enjoyable movies. You can sit back, relax, not think about, you know, um, it's campy for the campy sake, but it's still very enjoyable. Remember, before I get started, I am on all social media. I'm on Instagram and Facebook at Oz. And remember, if you would love to send me a direct message, it's HorrorCryptOz, with the O and the Z being the uppercase, at gmail.com. That being said, as always, I love to play the trailer of these movies that I'm reviewing, so I think you should sit back, relax, because here we go. Five years ago, Stephen King and George Romero, two masters of the macabre, created their hallmark of horror, Creepshow. Many would argue that nothing of significance has happened since until now maybe you don't get out much oh this is crazy this is totally crazy maybe you're always running late i gotta go or maybe you just have other things on your mind they gotta make me a movie star but if you only make it to one scary film all year make it one you remember all year long <laughs> creep show that will keep you snapped to your chair. Stephen King and George Romero have conjured up an all-new creep show. No! Is it possible? Just for you. No! What is it? I don't, I, I, don't, I don't know. So don't just sit there. <gasps> I'm going to swim for it right now. Walk. <laughs> Run. Swim if you have to. The scares come twice as quickly. I beat you. Creep show two. So the caption of this movie is the most fun you'll have being scared. Well, as far as I'm concerned, this is the most fun you'll have with your pants on. Yes. Creep show was released in May 1st, 1987. Runs for 92 minutes. And the budget was $3.5 million. And it was actually grossed uh, $14 million. It was actually not too bad. Unlike the first film, Creepshow 2 only contains three stories instead of five, which I found very interesting when they made this one. Um, but the three stories are very enjoyable, and I really did really did enjoy these ones. Um, originally, two additional stories, Pinfall and The Cat from Hell, were set to appear in the film, but were scrapped due to budgetary reasons. However, the latter has been filmed for The Tales of the Dark Side, the movie. So I actually thought that was pretty good. So the movie starts and it opens up with a small town in Dexter, Maine. A delivery truck pulls up to nearby newsstand. A young boy, Billy, eagerly follows the truck on his bike to the newsstand. The truck truck's back shutters, then opens to reveal a sinister delivery man performed by Tom Savini and voiced by Joe Silver, who drops off a package onto the sidewalk. Funny enough, the license plate reads Creep. And as he comes out, he looks at Billy and he says, I've never been, I've never seen anyone so keen as you are, Billy, to get the first copy of Creepshow. 
hot off the presses, as if your very life depended on it. Then the film transitions to an animation. The package is opened by a pair of miniature winged demons, revealing its contents to be copies of the latest issue of Creepshow, with the comic having the same cover as the comic by the final scene in the previous film. Much to Billy's delight, the delivery man reveals his identity as the creep and vanishes. So basically, he jumps off um, from the uh, back of the van, and he almost becomes like a, um, oh, like a small, like almost like Dracula, but disappears. And Billy's standing there now. This is in animation, and he's sitting there rubbing his eyes as if, did I see what I really saw? I'm not sure. Holy crap, that rhymes. Man, I didn't realize I was that good. As Billy picks up an issue and begins to read it, the film changes locations to the sinister castle where the creep welcomes the audience. After feeding a hunk of meat to a monstrous lizard, the creep proceeds to tell the first story. So the creep basically looks at uh, the audience and says, um, Back for more, eh? And he says, I can't believe you boys and ghouls have come back for a second helping. And this one, the first movie, the first story that we are going to go into is Old Chief Woodenhead. Ray and Martha Spruce, an elderly couple who live in a small fictional town of Dead River, Arizona. They own and operate the town's general store, whose decor includes Old Chief Woodenhead, a cigar store Indian who stands on the front porch. So as we see um, Ray, he's actually trying to uh, repaint Chief's colors because every chief has to have his war, war paint. And so he's up on a step ladder and he's painting the, you know, the, the, the red on his, uh, on his cheeks. And he goes, there we go. It's, you know, not too bad at all. Cause he was, his hands shaking. He's, he's an older gentleman. And he says, there you go. It just doesn't actually look too bad. And, uh, so Martha comes out and says, you know, we haven't had a paying customer in weeks. We haven't had a credit card payment in months. You know, the, 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 uh, the town of Dead River is actually, um, becoming its own name. Like it's living up to its own name. Um, and everyone's moved away, and you and the, the and your silly Indian are the only two people left here. And he said, "Ah, oh, this is good country, Martha. You know, it'll come back to us. You know, soon. You know, one day it'll come back to us." And um, so there's this car that's driving from the gas station. Now the gas station is only a stone's throw. You could literally from from Ray and Martha's store to the gas station. If you threw a rock, you'd actually be able to hit it. It's that close. But this car is. Um, getting some gas, and then drives from there to in the front of Martha and um, Ray's store. Of course, there's dust that goes all over the Chief Woodenhead, and, and of course Ray's like, oh, Chief, all over your nice, you know, uh, freshly painted uh, colours. And this Indian man comes out, uh, Benjamin Whitemoon, the elder of a local Native uh, American tribe. So he comes in, and he basically says to them, listen, you know, um, I've got something I need to give you. Before that... You know, Martha encourages, you know, Ray to shut the, down the store and save money of what they have left. But Ray's hesitant because he wants to have the memories of the store that everything that it gave, the, the store gave them. Like it was able to get their first home and it was able to help them send their children to college and things like that. So this is a really, this is a very big momentous occasion as far as the memories that he's got of this place. And he can't let that go. And yes, you know, Dead River is dead. There's nothing going on in this in this town anymore. There's, you know, maybe maybe three stores, including his, as I said, a gas station, but everything is just packed up and moved away. But anyway, the, sp the spruces are visited by Benjamin Whitemoon, who gives them a bag of turquoise jewellery, his tribe's sacred treasures, as collateral for the debt the tribe has incurred. Despite initially refusing to accept them, Ray vows to guard the jewels with his life. So, 
you know, Benjamin Whitemoon comes there and says, you know, I, I'm ashamed to be in your in your presence. I'm ashamed to be in your store. And he says, uh, I've, you know, I've gone through, you know, everyone have gone to everyone and they've actually given me their prize possession and we want to give this to you. And he goes, no, I can't, I can't accept that. You know, Benjamin, this is from your people. And he goes, um, you know, we, you know, you're a very proud people. And he goes, hang on, I can still be proud. Our people can still be proud. But, you know, we need to have some sort of pride amongst us. And he says, now to give this back to us would be a massive sign of disrespect. He said, you know, when we've got the Elene, which is, this is what the, the jewels are, are called, the Elene. He says, we are, we're, we're borrowers, you know, and if you give that back to us, we are basically beggars. And he said, if you give us back, give us back these jewels, such an insult can never be forgiven. And of course, reluctantly, Ray goes, okay, yep, all right, I'll guard them with my life, but you know, and he says to, <laughs> he says to, um, he follows uh, Benjamin out. Because because uh, luckily Martha comes out from the back and says, you know, I was scolding Ray for being so nice and giving people credit, but you and your people have certainly shown me the ways of, of my uh, misconception of people, and I'm I hope you accept my apology, uh, you know, Benjamin, because you are good people, and uh, so they follow Benjamin out, and he jumps in the car and drives off, and that's when Ray says, you know, the 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 place is going to come back to us one day, Martha. You know, it's good country. And he looks at old Chief Woodenhead and he goes, Chief, I'll finish your war paint tomorrow. And we shut the door. Now, just a small bit of backpedaling. So as Benjamin Whitemoon bids the, you know, uh, Martha and Ray farewell, he looks at old Chief Woodenhead and says, you know, uh, a koane, Chief Woodenhead. And the chief nods in response briefly startling him so he's almost like did i see what i think i saw but he doesn't think too much of it he gets into his car and drives away farewelling and returns home later that night the spruces are subject to a vicious robbery headed by benjamin's estranged ne'er-do-well nephew sam whitemoon armed with a shotgun and his two friends the wealthy andy rich boy kavanagh and the gluttonous vince fatso gibbons after ransacking the store and emptying the register for what little money it has, Sam demands that Ray hand over the jewellery holding Martha at gunpoint. This is pretty, this is pretty a hardcore scene. So they come inside and they close the door and, um, you know, Fatso is behind the door and he basically goes, how, you know, and they start robbing the place, as it said. And Sam is, is, I don't know, he's very delusional about how wonderfully good looking he is and how his hair is going to take him places you know he's going to go to hollywood and he's going to be a movie star and stuff like that but he's going to pick up some cash before he leaves and of course he opens the register and there is not very much at all i mean really how much business are you going to do with a place that's falling apart and and a, a um a town that's dying how are you supposed to do that it's not possible but anyway he does say to martha that there is a uh, a handbag in the back when he came in go and get it and as he goes toward, as she walks towards the the back room, he grabs a hold of her shirt and says, "You know, any any short, you know, any uh, smart stuff back there, and I'll blow your old man's keister off." And so she slaps his hand out the way and walks off to get the uh, the handbag. So she comes out from the back and gives him the handbag and walks over to where um, Ray is. And of course, you know, Ray is saying, "Why are you doing this? You know, your your uncle is one of the finest men I've ever met." And, you know, why are you doing this? And he goes, well, you know, I'm doing this because it's no, none of your goddamn business. And he says, oh, uh, before we leave, 
you know, there was there's one more thing we need. And he goes, well, what? What is it that you need? And he goes, that bag of rock candy that my uncle just gave you. And he goes, no, I can't. I can't give that to you. This is from your people. And he goes, yeah, well, fuck that. I want that. And, of course, Fatso says, what do you mean by rock candy? And he goes, there's a million dollars worth of jewels in that bag that he's got. So during the struggle, he holds um, Martha around the waist. And he's got the shotgun right against the side of her. And basically, Kavanaugh, um, Rich, Rich Boy, is basically sitting there watching this whole thing. And Fatso is trying to get a hold of the uh, the Elena. And he's like, you know, no, you, you can't, you know, you're not going to grab this. And, of course, there's a lot of pushing and pulling and... And, you know, they're struggling over the, the, the jewellery. And uh, at that moment, uh, Martha is screaming, saying, Stop it, stop it, you know, leave leave him alone, leave him alone. Unfortunately, in the struggle, Sam's gun goes off and fires at Martha, killing her. So seeing that his wife's been shot and killed, Ray starts to go towards Martha to save her, you know, like, you know, wants to see if she's okay. Sam's not holding back any longer. He decides, now nah, fuck this, you know, I, I'm not going to need to leave any witnesses. So he shoots um, Ray with the shotgun. Of course, it knocks him back a little bit, but he immediately starts walking forward again towards Martha. He then fires one more shot, and at that moment, Sam uh, Ray falls onto a pile of rice, um, the big bags of rice that he's got in his store, and he's dead. At that moment, Fatso decides to throw up everything that he's eaten. He's so gluttonous, he's disgusting, you know. And they grab the Eleni anyway, the, the bag of rock candy or the bag of jewels that it's got. And uh, so in celebration, <laughs> he goes, okay, we've got to get out of here, you know, so let, let's go out the back. Let's go jump in the car because they're going to be heading off to Los Angeles a little bit earlier than they thought they were going to be. They're thinking they were going to go maybe in the morning as like later in the morning. But now they've got to go like now because it's only going to be a matter of time before the police come and find what's going on. So they've got to get basically get out of Dodge as quick as they can. So as they exit the back, Sam, I don't know why Sam goes through the front door, but anyway, he goes through the front door and he sees old Chief Woodenhead standing there. And he's, he's saying, you know, no more fucking small town. And he looks towards um, old Chief Woodenhead and he goes, and no more fucking tribe either. And shoots um, old Chief Woodenhead. Doesn't destroy him, just knocks him back a little bit, but it doesn't destroy the Chief. Of course, at this moment, Kavanaugh's got his car out the front. He jumps in the car and off they scream. And as they're driving off, you know, he, uh, Sam's saying, okay, whatever shit you want to take, we're going tonight, okay? And he says to, um, you know, uh, Rich Boy, now you go off, get your stuff, meet me and pick me up at 11 o'clock. And of course, at this moment, you know, Rich Boy's sitting there saying, yep, oh, okay, Sam, no problems, because he's not going to back chat this guy. And... Uh, you know, Fatso does say to him, and what about me? And he goes, oh, I've got to have you too. I've got to have my slave. You've got to come too. So off we go. We're going to go and see um, all these guys getting their stuff prepared to leave the uh, leave their respective areas, jumping in the car and heading off to what they say is Hollywood, the golden place of Hollywood. Before this this scene, Sam was taking photographs of himself in a, um, in a photo booth that actually um, Ray's got in his... In his uh, store and takes a number of photographs and is basically saying you know how wonderful he looks and he's these kids got to be made a movie star he's got movie star looks his hair is beautiful he's got nice long hair and this is the whole thing that revolves around this this story is that his hair it's taken him so many years to grow his hair it's nice and long and thick and luscious and he just thinks that ah oh, every woman's going to want to rub their their uh this hair between their legs and 
And it's like, yeah, okay, Sam, whatever. <laughs> you know, a little bit delusional right here, buddy, but, you know, it doesn't matter. So, um, three the three thugs drive away, beginning preparations to run away to Hollywood, where the vain Sam expects to become a movie star in part due to his long, dark hair. After they leave, Old Chief Woodenhead comes to life using the spilled paint to finish off his war paint and lets out a howling battle cry before embarking on a vicious warpath to kill the thugs and avenge the murdered spruces. Because, you know, there's there's Martha and, and Ray and Ray and Martha have looked after him. You know, they paint his war, war paint and they keep him all looking nice. So, yeah, he's going to definitely want to have some payback and he's going to want to look after avenge you know the deaths of the people that looked after him so he is on the warpath as they say not no pun intended to get these thugs that have gone and killed his his friends so old chief woodenhead first goes after vince uh now this is the guy vince is fatso and uh now this is very interesting we're supposed to be getting ready to go so kavanagh rich boy is going to be the first one um I mean, he's got the car, so he's got to try and he's got to go and pick up everyone. So the other two are basically just sitting around in their house waiting for this guy to pick him up. Now, I understand, okay, you've, you've got some preparations to do, but don't you think you... I mean, I don't think you'd be sitting down watching reruns of uh, of an old TV show while you know that you've just been involved in a murder and an armed robbery. I don't know. I'm not, I'm not a criminal, so I don't know. But um, so there's Vince, and he's sitting in his chair watching this old, you know, um, TV show, and he's got a beer in one hand, and he's got a, a, a bowl of popcorn in his lap. And of course, you hear what seems to be something flying through the air, and we, we realize that it's actually um, arrows that are being fired by old Chief Woodenhead directly at Vince, and it basically pins him to uh, his chair, the first two anyway, and then the third one goes straight through his head. And there is Vince basically sitting in his chair, blood running down his face, and he's got three arrows, you know, pinning him, um, and the other one's killed him. So that was the first kill, which was really quite good. So then Old Chief Woodenhead goes after Andy. Now Andy is, Andy Kavanagh is rich boy. And uh, so he's leaving his house, and he hears this commotion, like this cracking of glass and everything that's, that's in the garage and he opens up the door and now this is a um pontiac firebird a gold one it is absolutely fucking gorgeous but anyway he walks in and this car is trashed like totally trashed and you see that the look on his face where he walks in and he just he just drops his bags onto the ground as if to say what the fuck and uh as the door to the garage is closing in silhouette where where um kavanagh is looking at his car you see Old Chief Woodenhead coming into frame. And at that moment, you see in silhouette, uh, Rich Boy turn around to see Old Chief Woodenhead. He grabs him around the throat and he hacks him to death with a tomahawk. <laughs> and then the next scene you see is that uh, Andy is sprawled out on his uh, the bonnet of his car with a tomahawk through his, um, you know, where he's being killed. Blood everywhere, laying spread eagled on the on the roof on the bonnet of his car, and then the roller door goes down, and in silhouette you see Old Chief Woodenhead. So that's two out of three. We are now going after Sam. Sam is the one that we actually are hell bent on getting revenge from. So finally, Old Chief Woodenhead corners Sam in his house. Sam is unable to fight back because as as he's standing in his room uh, in the hallway of his uh, house, he there's a mirror in, in back of him and he sees the reflection of Old Chief Woodenhead standing there. 
and he's like he's like no fucking way and he fires a shot through his shot from a shotgun at old chief wouldn't doesn't do anything to him whatsoever and of course sam being the coward that he is he runs away and he hides in the toilet and he's got the shotgun pointed directly at the at the door to say you know come on come on in you know um he attempts to lock himself in the bathroom and escape through a window, but Old Chief Woodenhead manages to break through the wall and grabs Sam by his hair and pulls him through the window and using the hunting knife to scalp him off screen. So basically, you see his head being pulled out through you know, through the wall and then you see this knife in Old Chief Woodenhead's hand and it comes down you hear this almighty scream and then the, the, the uh, screen cuts to out the front of... Um, Ray and Martha's general store. The next morning, Benjamin Whitemoon wakes up to find his bag containing the turquoise jewels on his bed. He's also got um, stuff around his neck and he's got some rings on his fingers. So he visits the Spruce's general store again to find Old Chief Woodenhead back on his porch, fresh wall paint adorning his face, holding his nephew's bloody scalped head and bloodstained knife. Now aware of what happened to the Spruces and what Old Chief Woodenhead has done to the killers, Benjamin wishes the old warrior a peaceful afterlife and drives away. And that's the end of the very, very first story. The interlude, as the film returns to animation, Billy is seen in the town's post office, still reading the comic book. He receives a package from the clerk, Mr. Haig, supposedly contains a product advertised in his copy of Creepshow magazine. Incensed by the sceptical clerk's dismissal of paying $9.99 for a toy, ordered out of a funny paper, Billy mentions that the package is the bulb for a meat-eating Venus flytrap. <laughs> Mr. Haig still doubts the contents of the package, saying that it might just be petunia bulbs. And, he, and of course, Billy's like, I don't think so. This is creep show. This is the, the this is a place that wouldn't have you know in the funny pages petunia bulbs. So the creep appears behind the post office counter, surprised to find the audience still watching, and proceeds to tell the next story. So he does say, "What you you're still here, or are you thirsty for more?" Okay. So this very interesting story is called the raft. In mid-October, four students, Deke, Laverne, Ray, and Rachel, drive out to the Cascade Beach, a desolated lake far from civilization, for some fun. Arriving at the lake, the foursome discover a wooden raft left out in the middle of the water. So as they're driving out, you know, they're smoking some pot, whatever, and and they're asking, you know, well, when when was the last time you saw this place? And he goes, oh, we, we saw this a little while ago when we were out doing some... Um, you know, just hiking through the through the, the woods and everything. And it's an absolutely beautiful place, secluded, you know, there's no one going to be there. And, of course, this is not the warmest, you know, time of the year. I think it's because I was saying that the, the water is basically coming down from the mountains. So I'm guessing the water would be pretty bloody cold from being up in the mountains. So it, it must have been, you know, I don't know how many degrees. As far as I'm concerned, it would probably be below. But anyway, they're hell-bent on you know, going out there. They've got some ideas of why they're going out there. Funny enough, they uh, the two guys actually think that we're going to go out there to get laid, but as one of them does say when they jump into the water, you know, my my balls will become ice cubes. We're not going to get laid out here. It's too fucking cold. So, of course, the first um, guy that jumps in the water is Deke, and he starts swimming out there, and he's like, oh, you know, it's, it's, it's fucking cold out here. So the next one, um, Randy, jumps into the water, and he swims out. And, of course, Laverne and... Uh, and Rachel are like, this is crazy. This is totally crazy to, to jump into this water. Laverne, um, uh, sorry, Rachel, 
one of those anyway one of them jumped in the water and started swimming and the last one who's wearing the, the b- bikini i think it's rachel she jumps in the water and they all start swimming towards this this raft while swimming to the raft randy witnesses a duck struggling against and being pulled under the water by an unforeseen force meeting deke on the wooden raft he urges the girls to swim faster he's like come on come on swim 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 because this thing you know it's basically as he says you know a little bit further on it's like it's an oil slick it's like it's but and of course deke's like have you ever seen a perfectly circular oil slick like a perfectly round oil slick that just stays in one spot and they try to explain to him that they did see an oil slick um, when they there was a, a an oil spill and they went down to help out the conservationists uh, clean off the the wings of birds that have been tra- trapped in this oil well or oil slick. And uh, of course, Deke's like, oh, very very ecological there, you know, Poncho. But anyway, he's encouraging the girls to swim. Come on, swim, 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 swim. And this thing is starting to move towards them. So the uh, the first girl jumps onto the you know under the raft and just as the other girl is about to get on the raft this thing you know almost circles and grabs a hold of her and of course you know he pulls her up you know out of the water and she basically says you know that hurt as you you pulled me up and that's when they say you know about the fact that have you ever seen a perfectly circular oil slick so all of them are now on the raft so all the four all the four students on the raft they discover what randy was so nervous about a large black blob-like creature resembling an oil slick floating on the surface of the water so they're talking about what what they're going to do like you know and the funny thing is when they drove up here um at the lake they didn't turn the radio off so there's there's this music blasting across the across the lake um you know the keys are still, still in the ignition so if someone had you know pulled up and decided to go and rip the car off there they've got to actually swim back they ain't going to get the car back anytime soon but so Rachel leans over the raft to try and touch the creature. So all of a sudden, it grabs a hold of Rachel and pulls her into the, to, into the lake. So now they don't actually understand that she's been pulled in because one of the girls, um, and oh sorry, the only girl remaining, Laverne, she and Deke have been smoking the wacky tobacco and she thinks that she just fell in. So she comes over and she's like, and she's laughing. She's like, oh my God, what, did she just fall in? And then, you know, they're trying to find where she is and suddenly she appears out of the water. But she's covered in this in this slime. And uh, she's like, you know, help me, help me, help me, you know. And uh, Deke manages to hold um, Randy back because Randy goes to jump in the water to go and save her. And Deke's like, can't you see she's already dead, you know. And she's, you know, she's just absolutely covered in this slime. She, there's just blood all over the place and she's just... She's basically sucked back into the water because this thing is devouring her um, or digesting her. Panicking and mourning the loss of Rachel, the three remaining students remember that it's currently the off-season, meaning there is no caretaker to rescue them anytime soon. And, you know, Randy also says, um, and nobody knows we're out here, so exactly what are we going to do? So as the time passes, Deke plans to swim to shore so he can break, so he can bring back help so he's like well i'm fast and i'll make it and they're like no no, no. and of course um laverne's like you you cannot leave us and she's like and he's like you know get the fuck out of my way i'm a very fast swimmer i'll jump over it and i'll start swim i'll swim back to shore jump in the car i'll drive off and get help and bring them back and of course at right at that moment 
<laughs> because you know you can almost see what's going to happen, but it's almost like it's almost like it's in slow motion. So he's standing there, and he's like, you know, I'm fast, and I can make it. And then suddenly he screams in agony, and this blob has been has gone underneath the raft, and is now going up and actually encircling his foot, and it's pulling him down. So of course, as he's trying to grab a hold of of the of the raft to stop him, this thing's pulling him further and further down. Randy reaches out to grab a hold of Deke's arm and uh, to stop him from getting pulled under. And then all of a sudden you just hear this bang and Randy falls backwards. And at that moment, Deke's leg is basically split up. So he's now almost doing a reverse splits. He can now basically kiss the top of his toes because his leg is completely broken and he's now bleeding out of the mouth and he's being sucked underneath the raft. And it obviously manages to pull him under the raft and killed him. Oh, so I killed him. That's great English. He pulls him under the raft and kills him. My God. Noting that the creature is still hungry, Randy and Laverne manage to evade the creature as it tries to go grab them from under the raft. So Randy basically, because you know Laverne's jumped on, <laughs> jumped into Randy's arms, and he's like, you know, no, he's going to get me. He's going to get me. And he's like, no, no, no. If you put your feet onto the boards, if you keep your feet on the boards, it's not going to get you. And you can see that it's trying to get through, but it won't because. You know, they are directly on the board. So, obviously, when Deke was killed, he actually had his foot, you know, one on, on the board and one off. So, he was able to get that way. So, he's trying to say, you know, stop, stop. You know, you, you're going to make me fall. Just put your feet on the boards here and we'll be safe. And, of course, it's now, okay, we're going to be safe for the time being. What the fuck are we going to do? So, when night falls, Randy and Laverne are afraid to fall asleep in fear that the creature will attack. Well, that's understandable. Um... The two of them take turns watching the creature, then eventually fall asleep in each other's arms. This is where you think, oh, this is beautiful. You know, they're, they're, they're fallen asleep. And of course, this thing, this creature, swims out from underneath the raft. So you've got now a hole in the raft where Deke was sucked through. Uh, you know, the other girl, she's gone. So now it's just Laverne and Randy, and they're sitting there. And this thing is basically waiting it out. It's almost like, well, I'm not going anywhere, and you guys are going to run out of options pretty soon so i'll just wait here and take my time first thing i've ever thought of is, is a creature sitting there waiting for this so anyway the next morning randy discovers that he and laverne are still alive and he's like oh phew, we made it and of course you know this is where it's like uh-huh this is what you're really gonna do right at this moment so neglecting to keep an eye on the creature randy lays laverne on the raft and begins kissing and caressing her sleeping body Shortly after, Laverne awakens and screams in agony, revealing that the creature has once again seeped through the cracks and has covered the right side of her face, much to Randy's horror. So as he's has he seen this, he she she wakes up and she's like, because uh, you know he's he's really he's kissing her stomach and kissing her breast, and she's reacting in a very erotic sort of fashion, and then she. She stirs to wake up, and he's like, I better not do this. So he puts her top down, and she's like, oh, my God, and turns, and this creature has completely, as it says, attached itself to the side of her face and is basically eating the side of her face, and she is just blood um, and disfigurement on one side of her face and then screams to Randy to help her. At that moment, this thing is basically covering all of her face and drags her from the um, from the raft into the water. And, you know, there's Randy, and he's watching this, and, of course, you know, she's coming up out of the out of the, the sludge, you know, screaming to help him, or, you know, for him to help her. So Randy decides, okay, fuck this, okay? So the, so he's 
now he's got no other option. I've got to swim for it. So you see Randy make that decision. Fuck it, I'm swimming for it. And he jumps off the off the raft and starts swimming. This thing is, this is where it's like, oh my God, oh my God, because it's chasing him down. So as the blob pulls her off the raft and begins to consume her, Randy jumps off the raft to swim to shore. And he, he's swimming. And this thing is like, you know, maybe, oh God, it's so close. I mean, you know, you see him swim past and then this thing is right on his heels and he barely makes it, escaping the creature. So he gets onto, onto the water. Now, what would you do? What would you do at this moment? Would you sit at the edge of the water and go, Phew, I made it. Or would you run like the clappers to the car, jump in the car and drive off? I would, if I got onto dry land, I would run like I wouldn't, like I've never run before. So this is the final jump scare of this one. And I'm going to say a quick spoiler alert. So as I said, this thing has been chasing him and chasing him, chasing him, chasing him, and it's it's so so close. And he jumps out the water. He runs out to the you know just out of the water, just a small little bit. And he turns to the creature and yelling at the top of his lungs, "I beat you!" Just as he turns to run away, right away from the blob. Unfortunately, the creature rears up from the water like a wave and engulfs Randy. <sighs> this is where the heart was like, "Oh my god!" It's almost like when I I remember when I showed this to my sister. I was a very bad brother. I think I exposed her to too many terrifying movies. But we were watching this in the living room, and uh, at that moment where the thing rears up like a wave and engulfs Randy, my sister literally jumped backwards as if to try and get away from this thing. It was absolutely hilarious. But then again, I, was, I wasn't that all that old anyway. But um, yeah, it was utterly hilarious. And it's one of those things that you didn't actually see coming. It's one of those quick little scares that you just didn't see and you think to yourself, he made it, he's safe, and then this thing rears up like a wave. So the blob returns to the lake and as it's leaving, as it's going away from the lake, you hear it just belch and it's like, okay, it's eaten four people at school, leaving no evidence of the four students having ever visited the lake other than the cars, the cars on the side of the, the, the water. Um, still running, and the clothes are there. Unknown to the students, there was a sign barely visible behind some thick vegetation that reads, No swimming. The film returns back to animation. Billy is then seen making his way back home from the post office, still reading the Creepshow comic. He is then ambushed by a gang of neighborhood bullies who taunt him. The gang's leader, Rhino, takes Billy's package from him and smashes it. As the bullies continue to mock Billy, Rhino pulls open the package, finding the Venus flytrap bulb, and drops it on the ground. Billy attempts to threaten him to give it back, but ends up, he ends up by crushing it with his foot. In retaliation, <laughs> Billy kicks Rhino in the groin and flees. Rhino orders his underlings to pursue him as Billy escapes. The creep appears from behind a tree, mentioning to the audience that Billy knows his way around the town, so the bullies won't, have, won't be able to catch him in a hurry. With that, the creep goes on to tell the last story, and this one is called The Hitchhiker. Anne Lansing, an adulterous Mainer businesswoman, wakes up and gets out of bed after sleeping with her with her gigolo lover. So um, she gets up uh, out of bed because she, she, they actually had the alarm set, and um, <laughs> she wakes up, and this thing, obviously there'd been a power outage because this thing is flashing, you know, 12 o'clock. And she's like, you know, that goddamn piece of electrical junk might, might end me up in divorce court. And uh, she goes, why don't you get an alarm, you know, a wind-up alarm clock? And she and he goes, oh, no, I hate the, the way those things sound. It sounds like school bells during the the middle, you know, of, of each period. It sounds horrible. I'd, I'd much rather like this. It's almost like waking up to electronic bird song. And she goes, oh, I'll, buy, I'll, I'll buy one for you. 
she's only just paid this guy for fucking her. And now he, she wants to go and buy him a, uh, an alarm clock? Yeah, radio. So anyway, she jumps in her Mercedes to drive, you know, off because she realizes that she's got to get home. Um, she realizes that she's only got 15 minutes before her attorney husband, George, arrives home. Desperate to beat George and to avoid suspicion and a potential divorce, Annie hops into the car and races from home for home several miles away. And she's like, you know, I've got to make, you know, 100 miles or several miles in 15 minutes. Oh, my God, that is a record. And then she's trying to work out what she's going to tell him when she gets home. It's like, okay, so what would I say? Um, I went to a movie. Okay, what movie? No, movie finished ages ago. So what What, 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 what am I going to say? Um, oh, I went out to dinner with Trish. Nope, can't say that because we're going to see uh, Bill and Trish uh, on the weekend and, and he'll ask her that. So what am I going to do? And then she looks over because she's talking to an empty car seat and she goes, um, I went to get laid, George. And she goes, um, $350 per orgasm. That's not not bad in this, this economy. And, you know, she's trying to make up all these ideas of how she's going to get around this this amazing several mile drive in 15 minutes. It's not going to happen at all. So... Desperate to beat George home, he, she comes in the car and she races for several miles. <laughs> a spilled ember from a cigarette that she was smoking causes Annie to lose control on the slippery corner where she runs down a Dover-bound hitchhiker. Seeing that no one witnessed the accident, Annie takes off and doesn't look back. Which is very interesting because you know, she comes around this corner and she hits the guardrail. And, of course, the car is swerving from side to side because it is. It's, it's wet and, you know, obviously it's very, very slippery. Duh, of course. Um, and she comes, and then suddenly she looks up, and there's this guy standing in a yellow jacket, uh, African-American guy, and he, she absolutely creams him and knocks him out and kills him right then and there. He's got this sign saying Dover, and uh, it flutters in the in the breeze and comes, and, he, and it lands on, her, on the windshield of, his, of her car and then flies off. And then, of course, she sees some headlights coming around this, this blind corner. So she, you know turns the car on and basically accelerates, you know, and she turns the headlights off, then a truck drives past her, and funny enough, we have to have at least one special guest star in this, it happens to be the truck driver Stephen King, and he pulls up alongside of the poor guy that's been, has been killed. Um, funny enough, <laughs> it's George who actually runs, rings the police to tell of a hit and run, because she, he's actually right behind his wife, unbeknownst to her. And of course, so she's driving along, and there's there's blood over, you know, um, over the windshield. So she squirts some water to clean it. Miles away from the scene, Annie thinks about what she's done and rationalizes the consequences in, involved. While she briefly considers considers turning herself in, at it, Annie ultimately concludes that no one has seen anything, and she thinks everything will be fine. Before she can continue, however, she spots the hitchhiker she's killed approaching the car through the rearview mirror. So as she's driving along, she <laughs> you see her drive past this guy, and she has this look like, what? on her face, and she stops the car, and she looks behind her, and there's this guy, <laughs> and he's waving his sign, and he's saying, you know, he's, approach he's approaching the car, and she's like, no, 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 this is not possible, and then suddenly, he disappears, you know, she can't see him again, and she's thinking, okay, I've glanced back again. He's not there. The hitchhiker is gone, causing her to believe that her guilt is making her seeing things. And she's sitting there going, um, you're seeing things, bitch. He's not there. And ultimately, she thinks that it's it's guilt. You know, she's guilty about what she's done. 
and she can't live with it. She can't live with the knowledge that she's actually gone and killed somebody. However, all of a sudden, the hitchhiker appears outside of a window and utters, thanks for the ride, lady, a line he repeats throughout the story. Annie screams and speeds off in terror, but the hitchhiker's hand reaches through the sunroof and grabs her. She drives off the road through the woods where she knocks the hitchhiker off the roof of the car with a low-hanging branch. So, you know, she's because she, she drives off and she thinks to herself, okay, well, he's, he's, he's gone. And then you do, you see this hand come from above her and grab a hold of her. And he keeps saying the same thing, thanks for the ride, lady. And so she's driving all over the place trying to shake him off and yelling, you bastard sort of situation. And does drive off into the woods and, you know, he's being hit by branches of trees and shit like that. And then suddenly there's an, a low overhanging um, uh, fallen tree, not a tree branch, almost like a tree log. And knocks him completely off and he goes off the back of the car and you think, okay, okay, he's gone. Nervous and he reaches through the glove compartment for a, re for a revolver, which she proceeds to load. <laughs> the undead hitchhiker once again appears through the opening of the door of the passenger's seat. And comes up with, you know, thanks for the ride, lady. Thanks. And, of course, he puts his hand up and Annie shoots him multiple times but fails to kill him. Because, first of all, she shoots him through the hand. And you see the see the blood come from his hand. And then she shoots him and it hits his face. And he's like, oh, like that when he, when, you know, the sound when she hit, when she shoots him. And, and he, he's trying to get up into the car. And she's kicking like anything to kick him out of the car. And basically puts the car into drive and drives off through the woods. <laughs> This is why I think this is one of my, my favorite campy movies. It really is. I'm, I'm going to watch this movie again as soon as I finish this, this podcast. It's freaking awesome. So she manages to kick him out of the car and run him over repeatedly. As Annie hysterically rants to herself, the hitchhiker climbs onto the roof of the car and pulls up his sign, uh, up his Dover sign. So as, you know, as she's driving along and she's like, you know, who is he? Who the fuck is he? You see this hand come up from the bonnet of the car. And the car's in motion, mind you. And she's like, no, no, that's impossible. You know, because this guy is still hanging onto the car. And instead of the sign saying Dover, it opens up and the sign reads, you killed me. And he once again loses control of the car and drives off the road. Because she's like, okay, that's it. You, I, I'm going to kick your fucking ass. <laughs> So she loses the control, she drives off, and she and the hitchhiker careen down the hill into a tree. Annie proceeds to repeatedly slam the hitchhiker into the same tree, knocking herself out in the process. And she's like, got that. That'll cost you, Mrs. Lansing, because at one stage, you know, when she, she you know, goes through the woods and, oh, just hit the, the bowl there. When she goes through the woods and everything, you know, she's, you know, she wakes up and she's like, um, okay, look at this, look at this car. It is a mess. It's going to cost two maybe $3,000 to fix this car up. This car is absolutely, and this is a Mercedes, mind you, it's completely and utterly fucked. But she knocks herself out in the process. So, you know, so meanwhile, a while later, Annie awakens from her accident, not seeing the hitchhiker anywhere. Annie believes that the experience was all a nightmare, and she's like, I must have, that's what I must have done. I must have fallen asleep, gone off the, the road, and hit a tree. There was no hitchhiker. There never was. And then she's like, oh my God, look at this car going to cost me two three thousand dollars to get this car fixed and and then she's she's but she feels her head and she goes oh that bump on my head yeah but that's okay they can fix me they can fix anything she's driving out you know basically talking to herself 
believing that the accident was was given gives her the explanation she's like okay so what am i going to say to george ah here's an idea the accident the accident is why i was late home <laughs> so she goes back on the road and drives home actually succeeding in getting there before him now when she gets there she goes oh my god in all of recorded history he's late my car gets smashed i get smashed and he's late then suddenly from underneath the car you hear the hitchhiker gruesomely mangled hitchhiker i should say still uttering uttering the words thanks for the ride lady crawls out from underneath the car and attacks her while annie vainly attempts to fight him off the garage door swings shut and the interior begins to fill with smoke Sometime later, George finally arrives home to find Annie in her still-running car, dead from carbon monoxide poisoning, and the hitchhiker's bloodied Dover sign sits in her lap. So as the film returns to animation, the creep is seen inside the delivery truck from the beginning of the film. He prepares to drive away and bids the audience farewell, but then spots Billy still being pursued by his bullies. Billy leads his pursuers into a vacant lot, swarming out with out-of-control plant growth as he rides into what seems to be a dead end rhino and his gang move in to pummel him only to learn that the bulb they smashed was not the first one billy had ordered a quintet of giant venus flytraps emerge from the surrounding weeds and devour the thugs one by one leaving rhino for last and spitting out his boot <laughs> billy opens his copy of creep show to display the advertisement for the giant venus flytraps he ordered reaffirming that they eat meat as the film returns to live action, the spectacle is witnessed by the creep who cackles in glee and drives off to deliver the latest issue of Creep Show to another town as the credits roll. I like this bit though. In the post-credits scene, the following text appears. Juvenile delinquency is the product of pent-up frustration, stored-up resentment and bottled-up fears. It is not the product of cartoons and captions. But the comics are a handy obvious uncomplicated scapegoat if the adults who crusade against them would only get steamed up over such basic causes of delinquency as parental ignorance indifference and cruelty they might discover that the comic books are no more of a menace than treasure island or jack the giant killer i thought that was a really cool end of the movie and as just as as i was saying of course you see the creep throwing out copies of creep show as they're as he's driving away um, I don't know who's driving because he was on that was driving. But anyway, someone's driving the car or the, the, the truck or the van. And he's throwing the copies of the um, the thing out. I love this movie. I think this movie is absolutely great. It is three stories of fun. It is just mindless fun for mindless fun's sake. It's not meant to be taken seriously. There is a couple of good jump scares there. But nothing that is would say it would be terrifying for a younger person to, to um, watch. It is just one of those really fun movies. And as I said, from beginning to end, I've always loved watching this movie. So zero to five movie reels, I will definitely give this a five out of five. I just think this is a perfect movie as far as just the, the fun and enjoyment of a movie that movies should be. And I think back in 87 when this was made, they still had that idea of movies should be fun. And I really enjoyed this one. So before we go, we've got to have Paul's Fun Facts. There are a number of uh, fun facts. There's actually 30 fun facts, but I'm only going to do you know a handful. So I don't want you to 
suddenly fall asleep with this, but Daniel Beer, who plays Randy in the segment of The Raft, almost died from hypothermia. I didn't know this one at all. So the water was so cold that his body turned green. Holy crap. The crew wanted him to continue acting, but he said that if they got him to continue working, he will walk off the set never to, re never to return. So they took him to the hospital and he made a full recovery and completed the segment of The Raft. Holy crap. Jesus. That's actually... <laughs> that's dedication for dedication's sake. At the beginning of the final segment, the hitchhiker, several Stephen King novels, are visible in the bedroom on the headboard of, of the bed. I didn't realize that one either. Far out. That's another awesome one. So in Old Cheap Wooden Head, the car that Benjamin White Moon drives overheated in the Arizona heat on the day of shooting. And you can actually see the steam and hear the vehicle overheating. Yeah, well, that makes uh, pretty much sense because, yeah, it <laughs> looks like it was bloody hot that day. And one more before we finish. When Andy Kavanagh, one of the three young punks in the first segment, Old Cheap Woodenhead, is checking out the comic book at the magazine rack at the Spruce's General Store, several issues of Creepshow comic book can be seen with the same cover as a graphic novel adaptation of Creepshow in 1982. There we go. I think that was actually a really great uh, little twist at the end anyway. So thank you very much once again for listening to the Horror Crypt podcast. Remember, I'm on all social media and platforms. I hope you guys have an absolutely wonderful week. Please come back and listen to the next episode next week. I absolutely love you guys to come and, uh, and listen. And as I say, every episode, and I'll say it one more time, for this episode, I'll creep you later. Mm -hmm.